Well, good morning, church family. Let's open the Bible together. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you, and you can flip over to page 1090, and you'll be able to be right at the passage that we're looking for. By the way, as you're turning over there, if you don't have a Bible that you can read easily or, or just need an extra copy for some reason, you're welcome to take that home as our gift to you. Now, as you're turning over there, let me remind you about what we have been talking about over the last several weeks. We've been in a series where we've been talking about our unusual king. We started looking back at the unusual promises that God has made to his people all the way back in the book of Genesis as we looked at, at the way that he was going to crush the serpent's head. And then we looked at the unusual promise about the kind of birth he was going to have and the location of his birth. And all those things were there to fill us with great peace about what God has done and all that he's going to do today. Then we looked next at his unusual arrival and his unusual birth. We saw that he was born in an incredibly humble way. And if he came in that kind of humility, then we should model that same kind of humility as well. Last week, we saw that the first people to greet him after he left the house was when he got to the temple there at 40 days old when his parents came to dedicate him. And they were met by two older adults, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, and we noticed that as they met, they just had this incredible devotion that they were already giving to this baby king. We were challenged last week, and I hope that you've been able to find some time to study God's word and see what it looks like to walk in hope and in holiness, and in fact, we're going to revisit that again this morning here as we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Today, we're talking about our unusual hope. Now, as we get into this this morning, to wrap this series up, we want to talk a little bit about Jesus's return. You see, the first time that Jesus came, he came as a baby in a manger, and we saw that, that humble scenario in which he was born to poor parents who couldn't even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. And so as we've seen that, we, we saw that his ministry on earth was characterized by this incredible humility that should mark us as believers as well. However, the Bible tells us that's not the only time that Jesus will come. We believe as a church, and we believe from what God says in his word, that there's coming a day when Jesus will physically return to earth. When he does, he's not coming as a baby in a manger, but instead he's coming to fulfill all of the promises left unfulfilled. He's coming as a conquering king. In fact, here's how one passage describes it. By the way, before we even dive into that, let me go ahead and acknowledge there are a lot of people out there who have different views on what this is exactly going to look like. When is Jesus going to come? How is he going to come? How is everybody going to handle it? What's going to happen before? What's going to happen after? There's a lot of questions about that, and there are some wonderful people who love Jesus and who are following him closely who see very differently on this topic. So today, we're really going to narrow our focus on his return to two different things. One, the reality that he is coming again, and then primarily out of 2 Peter 3, we're going to be focusing then on how should we live in light of the fact that he's coming. But now let's look at how that coming is described. Revelation chapter 19 talks about his final arrival this way. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. 
He will rule them with an iron rod. He'll also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that's a little different than the manger, isn't it? That this is a conquering king riding on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, if you had a room with all of the kings of the world in it, Jesus would be the king over all of them. If you had all of the people who were in authority, people who were lords back in the day, all of those who were in authority over the earth, if you put a room full of them, Jesus would be over top of all of them. He is the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords. And we look forward to the day when he returns. Now, as we dive into 2 Peter this morning, we're going to see that we should live with a very unusual hope because of Jesus' return. We talked about this some last week, but let me remind you. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not the idea that I hope 2022 is better than 2021, or I hope that this doesn't happen, or I hope that my team wins the Super Bowl, or I hope that this or that or the other thing. Instead, it is an expectation. It's certainty that knows that God is going to fulfill his promise as it's as good as done. And so we can trust and hope that Jesus is coming again. Not just a wishy-washy, I really hope it works out in the end, but instead to know with certainty that Jesus is going to return and live in light of it. So as we do then, the question for us is, how are we supposed to live? The people that Peter is writing to here in 2 Peter were people who were already being persecuted for their faith. They were suffering just because they were Christians. And as they suffered for Jesus, they were looking and waiting for Jesus' return, but he hadn't come yet. They knew that Jesus had promised to return, but they hadn't seen him. So in this section, Peter is encouraging them how to live life during this time where we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And as you and I live with unusual hope, we need to be doing the same. So let's look at this and make three main observations about what it looks like for us to live with unusual hope while we wait for Jesus' return. The first way that we'll do that is we'll see that as we're living, we can live with the expectation and understanding that people are going to doubt God's word. Again, looking here at 2 Peter chapter 3, start with me in verse 3. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, there's a lot of symbols in that passage. There's a lot that talks about events that we don't have the time to dive into this morning. But here's the main thing I want you to see out of that section. And that is that people will doubt what God says. Now, doesn't that sound like we are about where we should be then? How many times have you seen a movie or a TV show that talks about those crazy Christians talking about how Jesus is coming back or some guy on a street corner with a sandwich board telling you that the end is nigh? Now, I'll admit there are times when we don't always represent Christ well in the way we talk about his return. But at the same time, the world around us largely disregards what God has said. In fact, I mean, think about it personally. Out of all of the people you know, how many people do you believe today genuinely, sincerely believe that Jesus could come back at any moment? 
How many people do you know who are really living like Jesus is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that they're gonna be responsible and have to give an account for that? When we really look at it, even many professing Christians don't live that way. Many of us struggle to live with that hope and that expectation. So it makes sense then that those who don't believe in Jesus would definitely not live that way. We have a lot of reasons why we believe we can hold on to what God says in the Bible. And if you have questions, by the way, about whether or not we should believe what God says, I would love to sit down and talk with you more about it if you're interested. Now, it is interesting here, though, because Peter makes this observation that I think many of us would miss. The denial of the fact that Jesus is coming back, doubting God's promises about his return, actually starts with doubting what he said from the very beginning. Those who look at life through the lenses that exclude God really would seem that life has always been like it has been. This is where you see theories of evolution and the earth being four and a half billion years old and all of these things because it assumes that things have always been just like they are today. But the Bible teaches us something very different. The Bible teaches us that God created the universe, that he simply spoke it into existence, that he worked and and built it all just by speaking things into, into what it should be. God's told us that he's the one who created the world. He's the one who formed it. He's the one who brought life into it. He's even the one who judged it with a flood, as Peter alludes to here. However, since our hearts are turned toward ourselves, we don't want to acknowledge that there's a God out there who made everything. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, bird, four-footed animals, and reptiles. He said from the very beginning, it's been obvious that there's a God in heaven who created the world. We can see his power and his beauty and the majesty. As my family and I were driving to and from Florida this week and saw beautiful sunsets and God painting the sky that way. Or or we've watched nature documentaries and seen a lady paddleboarding through the the bay in Puerto Rico and seeing bioluminescent algae just shining in the night sky. Who made all of that? Well, God said that he's the one who created it all. But as we see, people have rejected that. And if people are going to reject what God said about the beginning of the world, certainly they're going to reject what God says about the end of the world. That's why in verse 7 he said, By that same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter said that this is just going to get worse. People are going to continue to reject who God is and his sovereignty or his ownership over all of creation. They're going to keep fighting back against him until the day he returns and sets it right. If you and I won't believe that God made the world like he said that he did, that he judged it once when he said he did, like with the flood and how he spared Noah and his family, then it stands to reason that we would disregard the fact that he's going to bring the whole earth into judgment when Jesus returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So as you see people around you doubting the return of Christ and and saying, this is all crazy talk, and why why are you thinking that he's going to come back? It's never happened, and it's never going to happen. Remember that This is exactly what Peter said would happen. It's going to get worse the closer we get to Jesus' return. So be resting and trusting in this unusual hope that he is coming back 
even when others disregard what he said. You know, there's one thing that really makes it hard for us to understand why, what Jesus is going to do in his return. That is the timing of it. You see, Peter actually is going to tell us what to expect as far as the timing of Jesus' return here. That's the second observation we make, and that is that God's timing will seem slow until it doesn't. It's going to seem slow until it doesn't. Read with me here in 2 Peter chapter 3 again. Pick up in verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and its works on it will be disclosed. Now, there's an interesting paradox that we find here, isn't there? Peter's giving us some incredibly helpful insight. First is that God does not experience time the same way that you and I do. There in verse 8, he tells us that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Now, he's not giving us a technical formula for calculating how long certain things will take, which is clear because he makes these two opposite statements back to back about a year and a day, or a thousand years and a day, and a day and a thousand years. See, he's simply telling us that the God we serve is eternal and exists outside of time. He, in fact, created time itself. So for him, the passage of time is completely different than it is for you and me. Think about how God described himself to Moses. When Moses asked God who he should go back to the people and say, sent him, his reply was in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, as he's doing that, he's using a form of the verb to be. What this teaches us is that God always has been and is and always will be. He's the only one who can call himself I am because at any point in eternity, in history, or in the present, or in the future, God is fully there. He's there right now. In Revelation, we see Jesus described as the Alpha and the Omega, which is like saying the A to Z, the beginning and the end. Elsewhere in Revelation 4, 8, God is described as the one who was and is and is to come. All of these things teach us that time does not work the same way for God as it does for us. That's what Peter's getting at. God's not bound by him by time like we are, so the 2,000 years that have passed since Jesus ascended into heaven are nothing to him. At the same time, God's been fully present in every moment of human history, including this present moment that we're in right now. And so God's very different in his relationship to time. So when we look at Jesus' promise to return then, we have to allow God to be God when it comes to time. To us, it seems like it's been forever since Jesus went to heaven. I mean, we complain because the holidays have messed up shipping, and so our Amazon Prime stuff hasn't come when we wanted it to, and it's been a few days later. And then we look at the fact that God's waiting to fulfill promises that he made thousands of years ago, and, and we can give up in despair. This can cause our hope to waver because in human terms, the longer you wait for something, the less likely it is to happen. That's not so with God, though. In fact, he has a very intentional purpose for delaying. Look back again at verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. One of the primary reasons that Jesus hasn't come back yet is that he's allowing time for more people to come into his kingdom. 
This verse doesn't mean that if we give it enough time, everybody's going to get saved and everybody's going to come into his kingdom. However, it does tell us that one of the main reasons why God's delaying, why he's waiting, is because he's giving an opportunity for more people to come to know him. What a great God that he's delaying, setting things right, that he's delaying this time so that more people could save. Think about it this way. If Jesus had returned when Peter wrote this letter, then you and I wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't have existed. And not only that, since we wouldn't have existed, that also means we wouldn't have been able to go into his kingdom when he returns or when we die. You see, God's delay meant that you could be born. It meant that you could live. It meant that you could grow up. It meant that you could come to know who Jesus is. So my challenge to you personally, first and foremost, is have you acknowledged the fact that Jesus is your Lord, your boss? Is he waiting on you? Perhaps today's the day that you could come into his kingdom, that you would surrender and say, God, I need to follow you and I I desire to be with you because God's delaying his promise. Not because there's not enough staff to make it work. Not because he's frustrated or can't make things come together, but because he's allowing time for more people to come into his kingdom. So the other question that I have for you is, if you know Jesus, what are you doing to help those around you who don't know him? We know that God's delaying, and one of the reasons he's delaying is so that more people will have the privilege of coming into his kingdom. So are you allowing God to use you in that? Are you sharing the gospel with your friends? Are you praying for them to come to know Jesus? Are you trying to go across the street or across the world or whatever you can do to be able to help people to come into his kingdom? He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't delayed his return. He's simply being patient, and he's allowing for more to come to him. So from this side of things, it seems like he's taking his time, and Jesus may never come back. However, look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and all its works in it will be disclosed. You see, it's taking what feels like forever. But when Jesus comes back, in an instant, everything about the course of human history will change. Our hope that we've been holding on to will suddenly be realized. His timing will seem slow until it isn't. And in that instant, when Jesus returns, none of us knows when that moment's coming. By the way, neither does anybody who's trying to get you to buy their book or to support their ministry or to send them money. We can look around and we know that we're one day closer than we were yesterday. But at the same time, we don't know when he's coming. It could be before this service is finished. It could also be 10,000 years from now. However, we do know that when he comes, it will be in an instant. In other passages, the Bible describes Jesus' return as instant or in the twinkling of an eye. Here he says he's coming like a thief in the night. When somebody doesn't expect it, when we're not looking for it or anticipating it, in that moment, Jesus may return. So then our unusual hope causes us to live in this paradox. On the one hand, God seems to be taking forever, but we're hoping in expectation. We know that he's going to return. We're just waiting because his timing looks different than ours. Yet in an instant, all of a sudden, everything will change about human history as Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. So are you living in that kind of expectation today? 
in light of the fact that he could come at any moment, knowing that people are going to doubt God's word, knowing that God's timing is going to seem strange, then what do I actually do today? How am I supposed to live right now? That's the third observation we make from this passage. And that is that we should walk in holiness and expectation. What's it look like for us to live in expectation? I was a student at Liberty when 9-11 happened. There was a, a huge resurgence in interest in Jesus' return right after the events of 9-11. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I, I remember sitting one time in a service and hearing Dr. Falwell speak, and, and he said, I, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back soon, but I will say, take out high-interest loans knowing that you'll never have to repay him. Well, unfortunately, it's been 20 years. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So is that what we're supposed to do? Just refinance those loans and hope that Jesus comes back before they become due? Or how do we live with expectation? I don't think that's how we're supposed to live. I don't think Peter would say that either. In verse 11, it says, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Then jump down to verse 13. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight and at peace. If the world is going to end and Jesus is going to come back for his people and judge the world, then I need to make sure that I'm living a life of holiness and expectation. Why? Well, because at any moment, at any day, Jesus could come back. Think back to those lists that we looked at last week or, or back to the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at last year. As we looked through those things, we saw that God has very clear standards that those of us who've been saved are supposed to walk in. We should make sure that our lives are first cleansed by his blood and salvation, and second, that we're living out what he's already done in us. We should live at peace with God, with others, and even within our own hearts. Why? Because we're waiting in hopeful expectation with certainty, knowing that Jesus is coming back. We know that he's going to come back and remove the stains of sin on the world. If you've got questions about it, I'd encourage you to dive into Revelation chapter 21 and 22. He's going to reunite heaven and earth like it was supposed to be. So we live with an expectation where we're keeping an eye to the sky, looking for our king to return. As we do, though, we're striving to live holy lives today with what he set before me. Because I want to be found working when Jesus comes. I want to be found honoring him when Jesus comes. I want to be found serving him and doing what he's called me to do, loving God, loving others, and leading others to do the same, working up until the very moment that he calls me home. Remember, even if Jesus delays his return, every single one of us is going to die at some point and stand before him. That could be today. So live like you're going to see him, whether through him coming back or through him taking you home through death. Now, here's my fear. As we've already said, there are going to be people who doubt, people who scoff, people who mock, people who ridicule what God says. And between that and just the general frustration of living in a world that's wrecked by sin, there's a fear that I have that those of us who are serious about following Jesus could turn into people like Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Most of us focus on the fact that God told Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. He didn't want to go preach to those people because he knew that if he preached to them, they would repent and God wouldn't judge them and they were really bad people and he didn't want God to save them. 
So if you remember, he got a ship headed the complete opposite direction. He got swallowed by a great fish. He got spit out. He goes, he preaches, and it's exactly like he was afraid of. As he preaches from the king to the lowest servant, they all repent of what they've been doing, and God spares the city. Now, a lot of us stop at that part, but remember what happened next. So that Jonah went and sat down where he could look down and see the city, and he just waited. These people are going to get what they have coming to them. I just know it. If you'll remember, God caused a, a vine to grow up over Jonah, and it sheltered him, and he thought, ha, here you go. Now I can just sit here in the shade, and I can watch God bring judgment on them. But the judgment never came. And if you remember, God sent a worm that killed that vine. And as it did, Jonah got mad because he didn't have this vine anymore. He gets into a fight with God about it. But as he sits there, God reminds him that he has concern and care for people more so than Jonah should ever care about that plant. But the book ends with Jonah sitting in the sun, angry at God, just waiting for God's judgment. It doesn't resolve cleanly. I have a fear that some of us may do the same thing. We may have studied the ins and outs of when Jesus is coming back and what it's going to look like, and it causes us just to sit there and wait. Just wait for the day that Jesus is going to come back. Yes, we should live with expectation and hope that Jesus is coming back. It should be an unusual hope that the rest of the world can't even begin to understand. But it's not a passive hope. You may have heard the statement, and it's kind of trite and cliche, but it's the idea of us not being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. The reality is Jesus has not come back yet. If he had, you wouldn't be watching the sermon. You wouldn't be listening to me talk. Those of us who know him would be with him already. So if he hasn't come back yet, then that means there's something that he still wants to do. Maybe he's still delaying so that more can come to know him. Maybe that more is you, like I said earlier. Maybe today you need to be saved. Maybe that more, though, is somebody that you're praying for to be saved. Or maybe somebody that you're giving so that a missionary can go and take the gospel to them. Or so that maybe, as the COVID restrictions hopefully eventually release, you can go, you can take the gospel to them so that they can come into the kingdom and serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know you've got dozens of questions about the end times and truthfully, so do I. Here's what we can do though. Whether we ever understand the full timeline or all the nuances, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is coming again as our conquering king. So until he does, let's live as a people who have an understanding that those people around us who don't follow Jesus, they're not gonna believe God's word. They didn't believe what he said about the beginning. They're not gonna believe what he said about the end. Not only that, those of us who are, are following him should live with an understanding that God's timing is different than ours. It's gonna seem slow until it doesn't. And suddenly, in an instant, he returns. Which, by the way, keep that idea of God's timing in mind when you think about the thing that's got you frustrated, the situation that's not resolving like you want it to. God's timeline is so much different than yours. 
And then third, as we live with this unusual hope, yes, we keep an eye to the sky, waiting and searching and praying for our king to return, but we do so as we actively serve him in our jobs, in our schoolwork, in our families, in our homes, in our own private devotional life, in everything we are. Live with an unusual hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the certain promise that Jesus will return. I pray that you would give us the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the understanding to know how to live like Jesus is actually coming back. How to live with how to live with expectation, how to live with joy. We trust today we pray you'd give us strength not to doubt, strength to rest in your timing and strength to walk in holiness and expectation so that we would be pure, holy, clean, without spot or without blemish. We thank you for Jesus who makes all this possible. It's in his name we pray, amen.